Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, wherever you're watching us from, uh, good evening, good afternoon, good morning. Tonight, I have with me um, a sister, a friend, all the way from Minnesota, from the United States of America, and we'll be speaking on the topic um, leadership and vaccination. Leadership and uh, vaccination. Um, can you just uh, introduce yourself, please? Okay. Um, good evening. Uh, good morning. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Bosola, uh, Oma Bosola Akishete, and um, I'm from Nigeria. I was born in Lagos, went to medical school at the University of Lagos, and um, did um, um, my uh, uh, residency in um, Rhode Island um, in internal medicine, and then went and did a fellowship in infectious diseases at the University of Minnesota. And um, I am an associate professor at the University of Minnesota in infectious diseases, I am the chair of infectious diseases at um, Health Partners Medical Group, and um, I have a specialty or a special interest, if you will, in um, uh, HIV and AIDS, um, especially in African Americans, Africans, and other people of color. Wow! Wow! That that's quite fast, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I can definitely slow down. <laughs> I think I need to give you another opportunity to, to say it again so that, you know. <laughs> well, there are a couple of other things I could add in there. <laughs> okay, just, just add some, you know, so, so that, you know. Um, yeah, but, you know, I just want to say you're, you're wonderful, yeah. I just want to welcome you and salute you uh, for showing up tonight. Um, Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, okay. I'm always yeah. so fast in introducing myself because I feel as though people are trying to listen to what I have to say. I don't necessarily know who I am, but I am very flattered that, you know, um, you want to um, introduce me. Um, um, I can add a couple of things. Like I said, um, I um, uh, after medical school, I um, went to the Caribbean. I was in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, okay. I did my internship there for like a year and a half. And then I went to do a master's in public health at uh, the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, um, Maryland. I worked at Howard University and the National Institutes of Health as a research associate before I went to do my um, internal medicine um, residency in, um, uh, in Rhode Island. And then, of course, I came to Minnesota to do my fellowship. And um, I got very, very interested in the um, world of HIV and AIDS um, because uh, at the time I was finishing my um, residency was when we started to get um, good medications to um, treat HIV and all of a sudden you know HIV was not a life um, not a terminal disease for people anymore and I was very interested in getting into that um, realm into that fight especially being that um, uh, we noticed that the um, infection, the uh, epidemic, if you will, was exploding in Africa at the time. So um, I've always been very uh, interested in um, uh, infectious diseases and in teaching, in educating my fellow um, uh, you know, individuals, especially people who are African-American, people of color, people from Africa. And um, it's, um, it's just been a passion of mine and I've been enjoying it. Wow, wow. Wow, Bosola, I just want to say I celebrate you 
Uh, <laughs> it's new to you. And uh, I just want to thank you for showing up at a time like this. You'll be speaking to something that is very sensitive, uh, a topic that is very sensitive all over the world. Uh, uh, vaccination, uh, you know, with COVID, so many things have happened. You know, there's been a lot of disruption. And um, I'm glad these countries in Europe are still going through, you know, the, the challenges in the U.S. I know that uh, that Friday uh, we've had, you know, a little over 20% of the population has taken the vaccination. Uh, in the U.K., the numbers, I mean, obviously, they've done much more than Europe and, and the U.S. Um, I want to ask you, you know, how did you get into leadership? Okay. I mean, um, you know, I actually didn't plan on being a leader in that sense. You know, when I um, first started off, um, you know, people will know me from school and my family. I've always been very independent. You know, I want to do what I want to do. And um, based on um, my um, mentorship from my parents, you know, I felt I didn't have to conform to what everybody else was doing. I didn't have to follow the regular route. So, um, I wanted to make my own way in life. I didn't want bureaucracy. I wanted to just do what was of interest to me. And that's why, you know, I've traveled, I've gone to different places and, and um, done a few different things um, in terms of my career. Um, I focused on my career a lot um, for the first, um, you know, almost 40 years of my life. And then um, I got married, um, you know, a little late and, uh, uh, and you know, focused a little bit on my um, family and you know raising a family, and um, I stepped back a little bit from the world of um, you know research and um, just being out there as um, this um, you know high flying infectious disease doctor because um, family is extremely important and uh, my kids um, were extremely important to me. Um, so I took a step back and then um, decided to sort of refocus myself and try to figure out what I wanted to do next. Yeah. Um, this opportunity came and I thought it was just a natural fit for me. I've been in the world of infectious diseases for a while. I had been in the organization, health partners, um, and uh, uh, for a while, and also had been in the academic world as well as working in a county hospital. And um, I come from another country. You know, I'm an immigrant, I'm a, an African, I'm a black woman. I figured, you know, I like challenges. I want to do something for the good of other people. There are a lot of things that I see that can be changed, um, you know, in all these aspects of my life that I just mentioned. Um, being a black person in the United States, being a woman, being an immigrant, uh, being an infectious disease doctor, even being a mother, there are many different things that we can do um, to um, inspire other people and to make it work for other people. So I figured that this was the way in which I could get out there and um, actually um, uh, try to help, if you will. And that's I, how I, I just want. I just want to thank you so much, you know, because I know your schedule is very hectic. Um, because the numbers are also rising in, in the U.S. in terms of COVID, um, if I, if, you know, if I'm not, um, you know, out of place, I know that about is it about eighty thousand a day or seventy thousand? The numbers as of Friday, you know, yeah, they're they're going up. They're definitely going up all over the country. I mean, when I even look at some small numbers, you know, Minnesota is one of the places that um, the um, rate has ticked up. You know, um, you know, at the beginning of January, I thought that, um, or towards the end of January, I thought, well, maybe we were getting ahead of this uh, epidemic and uh, we didn't have so many people in the hospital, but things have ticked up again. We have 
many, many people in the hospital. Um, and these people are younger, you know, they are not as old as the people who we had initially. Um, so it's the numbers are going up again. We have these variants that are out there that are more transmissible. Um, we have, um, um, you know, people who are tired of being in lockdown. They're tired of wearing masks. They're tired of not seeing their family. The weather is getting better. And so people are just, not everybody's adhering to the mitigation attempts in, in terms of public health. So we're seeing those numbers rise again. Um, it's a bit um, disconcerting and disappointing because of all the work that has been gone into trying to get things um, to this point, you know, from the um, different people, researchers, education, doctors. Um, but we just keep trying, you know, I'm hoping the message gets through. I just want to jump in and just thank you for, you know, your service, what you've been doing, you know, uh, since March 2020. I mean, the world has gone through a major disruption and particularly for, um, you know, people like you that are doctors, you're in the midst of everything. How has it been, you know, coping? I know you also, you know, uh, went through your own challenges in the midst of all this COVID. Can you speak to that, please? Yeah, it was very, it was very challenging, actually. Um, you know, when this came about um, at the beginning of last year, we were thinking that it wouldn't be so severe, but obviously, you know, we're thrown into a global pandemic and America got it, um, really bad if you will you know we our numbers soared very very quickly um and uh, we were called upon um especially infectious disease doctors um you know critical care doctors and heads of different organizations you know to try and get um some guidance in place you know um look through all the research um what medications can we use what are the um, different um symptoms of this disease how is it spread uh, what kind of public health um messages should we get across what kind of research can we do and um, though, you know at the beginning of we've never seen this virus before right this virus is totally unique so um, there was so much we didn't know about it. And there were all the medications. I don't know if you remember hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, I kept yeah. it at the beginning. I was consulted by some people. And uh, we had to debunk that. And there were many different medications that were tried and didn't work. And we were seeing people die every single day. The numbers were terrible in the hospital. We were so busy. Um, we would get home at night at around 10 o'clock and then get to work again at around seven something in the morning. Hardly saw my kids. And then um, I got infected. My whole family got infected in, um, wow. I think it was in June or so of 2020. And, um, you know, I felt very, um, I felt very, uh, what's the word, guilty. Because um, initially I thought, well, was it my husband? Did he go to a grocery store and didn't put on a mask or wear gloves? But at the end of the day, you know, it only made sense that it was that somewhere or the other, I, I brought it home. And wow. um, I felt extremely guilty. Um, I made sure that my husband and my mother-in-law, who um, had been staying with us, um, were very, they had it a little bit worse than I did. So I had to you know, look after them and then look after myself and look after the children. The children, my two children were they had the disease as well, but they were asymptomatic. Um, and so between looking after the kids and um, taking care of myself and taking care of other people and still trying to work, it was a major, major challenge. Um, wow. I don't know how I did it, but... Um, Thank God I'm you're here. Thank <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Because um, I, I just want to speak to that because it's not for you 
just to come and encourage us, but also to let you know that we also appreciate what you what you're doing, and you know, also your colleagues all over the world uh, that are making sure that people are, you know, taking care of. And uh, we just want to celebrate you. Now, um, how important is vaccination? How important is it? Now, you're talking vaccination for all diseases or just for COVID? For COVID. I mean, I want to focus on COVID now. But okay. you can expand it if you wish. Okay. Well, vaccination in general is extremely important. Extremely, extremely important. And um, we who come from developing countries see infections every day, preventable infections, preventable deaths. I remember being in medical school and trying to, you know, use a... Uh, um, uh, an ambu bag to um, try to bring oxygen into the um, lungs of this little boy, baby who had tetanus. He hadn't been vaccinated. His mother hadn't been vaccinated. And we had to take turns because we didn't have a ventilator. And of course, the baby died at the end of the day. There are so many, many, um, so many preventable diseases that um, people died of. And that's actually what got me interested in infectious diseases in the first place. And so now that we have so many vaccines and people are living longer, not just in the developed world, but in the developing world as well, we shouldn't forget that there's a reason why vaccination why vaccination came about in the first place. Um, these organisms, microorganisms, some of them, parasites, some of them, they have been here before human beings populated the earth and they'll be wow. here after us. They can adapt very well and they know their resilience. They know they'll always keep changing to become wow. more um uh not infectious but you know just to give them advantage you know because they want to survive as well. And we as human beings are in their um, environment, we're in their niche, we're either from medications we take, you know, drinking water that they live in, you know, many different things that we do. Um, and we put ourselves in that um, environment. We need to be able to protect ourselves, you know, and vaccination is the main way to do it, especially in our young children. Now, moving on to COVID, COVID is, ex is very, extremely important because this um, virus is one of the most transmissible viruses out there. Measles is the most transmissible that we see because measles, if one person has it in a room, you're sure that at least 10 or more other people in that room will get it as well. It's airborne, yeah. stays up there for a while. COVID, um, initially we didn't know exactly how it was spread, but we do know that um, some particles can be airborne and linger for a little bit. And we know that... Um, you know, you're close to people, is by droplets. So when you get to people, close enough to people and you can talk to them, um, mm. you get these droplets and then you, you infect somebody else who inhales it. Mm. Um, we can only wear masks, um, you know, we can't wear masks 24 hours a day. You have mm. to eat, you have to drink. We've been on lockdown for such a long time. Um, people can't survive that way. Human beings are social people. They have to be around other people. It affects people mentally, physically, um, emotionally to be on their own. The vaccination, we thank God, came about within, you know, several months, you know, after um, this um, virus was discovered. And um, it is the only way in which we can end this disease. Wow. We need herd immunity. Wow. Um, the virus will continue the virus mutates that's what mm. viruses do they try to make an advantage for themselves and they keep mutating and mutating when um every most of the time the mutations don't do anything but they okay. occasionally get some 
mutations that confer a major advantage to them, either by be making them more transmissible or more deadly. Mm. And um, we know that the B117, that's the strain that was seen in the United Kingdom initially, is about 60-70% more transmissible than the wild type that came about in March, that was discovered back in March. And um, if we do not stop the spread of this virus, if we don't stop the spread from one person to another, it will just keep going and going and going. And it will keep mutating to more and more strains that the vaccines might not even be able to um, prevent. So we need to get vaccinated if we want to get back to our lives from- Normal lives, wow. September 2019, yes. Well, I know in the US, you know, uh, President Biden has, you know, put in a lot of uh, strategies to make sure that, you know, there's an uptake, you know, by quite a number of people. I mean, done over 100 million in terms of, uh, you know, vaccinations. But uh, now, what's the challenge? I know people of color, you know, particularly people of color, uh, they have um, challenges, you know, in that area. Can you speak to that? Well, in the United States, for one thing, you know, the um, history of the um, the relationship between the medical community and people of color in the United States has been pretty poor over since the beginning of the United States. People might not know about this um, Tuskegee syphilis um, study that was um, started. I think it was in the um, in the fifties, whereby they were studying um, men, black men, who had syphilis, and they wanted to study them over time to. Um, basically um, follow the disease and to see how it evolved over time and then dissect them afterwards to see what happens to the brain, etc. And they didn't tell them that penicillin had been discovered to treat this disease very, very, very easily. I mean, penicillin is the first antibiotic that was discovered and it could have cured this man. And they did not offer it to this man. They didn't tell them anything wow. because they wanted to study this disease. There have been many things that the United States that um, the United States medical system has done to people of color for sterilization, um, even um, the way that they are treated in the medical institutions. You know, you can be a doctor, you can be somebody of means, but you might be treated horribly when you get in because you are black or you're of you know you you're, you're a person of um, color. So people of color have a mistrust of the medical system. They haven't been treated well by it. They've been used as research guinea pigs. And when they go into the system, they're not treated very well. So why, you know, obviously people will have questions about going in to receive Mm. a vaccine or anything because they don't trust what they're telling them. And Mm. that's why it's become a major, major issue. There's also a lot of misinformation. Um, In the United States and around the world, Nigeria, where you know, we come from, um, I've had to, you know, talk to many people to try and debunk several um, ideas about what this um, virus is all about, what the vaccines are about. Um, There's been so much um, talk about it getting into your cells and causing long-term effects. And um, I mean, all these things are not true. So, um, but they are more believable to us as people of color and as people in other parts of the world because of the history of what has happened, not just in the United States, but in other parts of the world as well. Um, so that's the challenge we face here. Now, 
Uh, thank you so much for being authentic. You know, I, I mean, there are quite a number of people listening all over the world and listening to you. You are not just um, uh, you, you know, the average doctor, but this is your area of specialization, infectious diseases, you know, and, you know, in that area, you, you know, been able to establish yourself. I just want to salute you and celebrate you. Now, I want you to speak on this uh, long-term COVID, you know. Uh, some people have side effects of, you know, uh, maybe, you know, long-term. Can you speak to that? You know, we, we, I'm not a doctor, but can you just, in layman's language, yeah. Yes, long-term COVID, or we call it post-acute COVID syndrome or post-acute COVID symptoms. Um, and we call it long COVID, basically. And um, just to, you know, as a brief um, definition, um, long COVID is um, the term that is used to describe um, symptoms of that persist for at least four weeks after your acute infection with COVID. Now, some of these symptoms might be due to COVID itself, and some of it might be due to just the effects of being um, sick and hospitalized with COVID, such as being in the intensive care unit for weeks or months, not moving because you're on a ventilator. So you have um, post, um, in, you know, ICU syndrome. But COVID itself has, some people who have had COVID itself have been noted to have these symptoms that can linger uh, four weeks after um, COVID, um, your acute COVID infection, and they could last for weeks or months in many cases. Now, people who get um, long COVID do not necessarily have to have had a severe illness. In fact, most people have had mild illnesses or have been asymptomatic. Um, people could have um, fatigue is the main one. Um, I experienced fatigue, a lot of fatigue, when I wasn't sure whether it was COVID or whether it was from the kids or whether it's from work, but fatigue where people feel they could sleep all day, you know, hmm. have body aches and pains, shortness of breath, cough, um, some neurological symptoms, you feel dizzy, you have a brain fog, you're not really concentrating, you don't remember things. Um, other people could have fevers, chills. Um, there, there are other symptoms that you could have after COVID. Now, we don't know 100% why, People, some people have these symptoms and others don't. Uh, we think maybe, um, I don't know, it could be up to, even up to 25% of people that might have these um, uh, lingering um, symptoms of COVID after um, their acute infection. But we don't know 100% why. What we do know is that COVID affects almost all the organs in the body. Wow. You, it affects your heart, definitely. You have people who've had heart attacks and they say, oh, I had a heart attack, he had a heart attack, so it wasn't COVID. If they did test him for COVID and he wasn't really at risk for a heart attack in the past, as far as I'm concerned, he had COVID, whoever it was. Um, and um, it affects your heart, it affects your lungs, it causes a lot of inflammation, that's the damage that it does. So it causes inflammation everywhere. Um, there's also an, um, a syndrome called multi-inflammatory um, multi-system inflammatory disorder. Um, it was first seen in children in the UK and um, published and we've started seeing it in other um, parts of the world and we've seen it in some adults as well, whereby, you know, this is after their infection, they didn't even know they had the infection and then they come back very sick. You know, their body is sort of fighting itself and um, a lot of them end up in the intensive care unit on a ventilator. Most of the kids who have it or who have had it survive because you just need to treat them and maintain their lungs. But the bottom line is when you have COVID, acute COVID, it is not just 
a mild infection in a lot of cases, it does damage to your body. Hmm. We don't know everything about it, but we know that people have these lingering symptoms and even people who do not have lingering symptoms might still have some underlying issues going on that might not be found out for years. So the best thing is not to get COVID in the first place. Now, I want to speak to this because there are quite a number of people that, you know, they feel that, look, um, they're not going to take the vaccination and they, they'll do, uh, you know, take a lot of, uh, you know, steaming and hear so many things, you know. And I said to someone, how long are you going to, you know, continue with steaming, you know? Can you speak to that? Is it effective? No, you know, the only things are symptomatic treatment, you know, like when you have the flu or you have a bad cold, like me, <laughs> or you have um, uh, malaria, there are things you take, you know, you take Tylenol, you drink water, you eat pepper soup or chicken soup to um, um, open up your um, sinuses so you can breathe better. These are things you do to make yourself feel better, but it's not preventing you from getting the infection and it's not preventing the, um, the, the consequences of the infection. We've just talked about the fact that it affects many different areas of your body and you don't even know what it has affected in many cases until a little bit later. Uh, because initially, in the first couple of days, the virus is just replicating, and then it can go on to an inflammatory stage where it causes inflammation in so many different parts of your body, and that's when people end up in the hospital. Because now it's not the virus doing it, it's the effects of the virus that are causing you to be sick. So um, people can do a lot of symptomatic treatment. A lot of people have also been talking about ivermectin, which is a bit controversial, because um, that is what is available in a lot of parts of the world because people do not have effective treatments like you know we might do in the United States. Um, not that we have great treatments for COVID in general, but at least better than in um, some other developing countries. So a lot of people have been taking ivermectin because there have been some studies that have suggested that it works. The problem with the studies is that some of them are not big enough. They don't have enough um, evidence to show that it actually works in so many different people in so many different parts of the world. Um, if they didn't take anything else, you know, because people are taking other different um, medications while they're taking the ivermectin. And because people are taking it all over the world now, we don't know if it really works or not, you know. Um, so I say that, you know, if you're not sure of the therapy, then you get vaccinated so that you don't get it. Or if you do get it, it is not severe so that you don't get sick and you don't have to use ivermectin, you know, or anything else. In the okay. Treatment. Okay. Okay, awesome, awesome. Um, if you're just joining us tonight, I've been speaking with my friend and my sister from Minnesota, United States. She's an associate assistant professor of infectious diseases. Uh, name is uh Bosola Akinsete, and uh, she's been adding so much value. I just want to celebrate you out of your busy schedule. It's, it's such a privilege having you on this platform tonight. Um, now I want you to speak concerning uh the different types of COVID vaccines. You know, we have AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, we have uh, Pfizer, we have Moderna. Can you speak to, you know, yeah. Because in the UK, I mean, obviously um, they've had AstraZeneca and a lot of people have had the privilege to take it, but there's also been the side effect of blood clots, you know, uh, people are a bit apprehensive, you know, uh, Johnson & Johnson, uh, they were supposed to come up with uh, a lot of vaccines. They had some challenges in the manufacturing side, you know. So can you speak to it, please? Yes, yes, of course. Um, you know, in the United States, um, I'll just say that in the United States, we um, AstraZeneca has not been um, 
approved. Uh, approved yet, exactly. So I don't have like 100% of information, but we do know that, we do know some information about it. As a matter of fact, in my hospital, my hospital was one of the main sites in the United States for testing um, this um, vaccine. So at my institution, um, a lot of people were involved in it in Minneapolis, Minnesota. A lot of people were involved in the um, in the trials. Now the mRNA vaccine, so those that's the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, as well as the Moderna vaccines. People were concerned or have been concerned about how fast this um, was developed. But I tell people that you know this was a technology that had already started in the past. They had been trying to use it for other infections such as um, influenza, Zika, um, rabies, um, Ebola, actually, in the past. What it entails basically is getting the, um, sequencing the virus so you get the whole virus itself and then you just take a small piece of the um, uh, virus, which is the spike protein, um, in this case in COVID, because that's what he uses to enter the cells of the humans. Um, mm -hmm. So what they do is that they get a code from that and that code, the code helps you make, makes your own, tells your cells to make the um, spike protein. And so what the vaccine is injecting into you is basically that code that is telling your body, oh, oh there's something here that um, you need to make the protein too. So your body goes, starts to make the, the, the protein of the spike protein, and then it makes it and brings it out and covers the whole cells with it, right? It doesn't get into your DNA. It doesn't get into your nucleus. It's just on the surface. And once well, it gets into the cell, it degenerates, the code degenerates, and then your body takes over. What happens is that when your body um, sees the new, the, the actual virus in the future, because your cells have been prime they're now very awake and alert that there's this protein that there is not supposed to be there they yeah. attack the virus right away and prevent infection so it had been going on for a long time they hadn't found a way to stabilize it yet because the body's immune system always tried to kill it but they now found a way to stabilize it so as soon as they knew this covid virus they managed to get all the sequences the chinese made that available at the beginning of the year they were able to just incorporate this quickly into a vaccine and um, basically um, be able to, you know, make up the vaccine very, very quickly. People have been concerned that it was too fast. They cut corners. They didn't cut corners. They knew exactly how this worked. And they, it, it can be magic. It can be synthesized very quickly and very easily. It can be adjusted very easily. So those are the two mRNA vaccines. Now, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson are similar, but they are not using your own code to make um, those proteins. They, they come in a... Um, there's a vector, something that is used to help them to get into your cells, um, which is um, made out of the cold vaccine, the cold virus. Um, in the case of AstraZeneca, um, I think it's the chimpanzee um, adenovirus, and then the uh, Johnson & Johnson is just a regular cold virus. And it gets into your cells that way and then helps your, your body get the um, instructions to make these spike proteins. I'm not exactly sure. Um, right now, we're not sure what um, the significance of those um, reports about um, this, um, what we call thrombocytopenic thrombocytosis, which is basically your body's clot, uh, forming some clots. Um, yeah, they've only seen it in young women, you know, women less than 50, in a very, very small number of women, very small number of people, considering millions in the world that have been vaccinated against this. Yeah. But obviously you don't want to ignore anything. It was something that was never seen in the trials. And um, it's almost like an antibody. Um, your body is sort of um, um, uh, fighting the um, 
your body starts to fight the platelets. It causes your body to sort of fight your own platelets and cause your, your platelets, which help you to clot, to go down and, um, you know, paradoxically, it causes you to form clots as well. So um, I know in some um, countries they have decided not to give it to people who are um, like, um, women of a certain age. Yeah, even in, even in Germany, yeah. Yes, yeah. and in, I think in um, um, yeah, I think in a couple of other countries, maybe the UK as well. Yeah. Um, so, but I mean, with the numbers are extremely small. And um, what we say is, when people ask, "What is the best vaccine to get?" is the vaccine that you can get into your arm right away. It doesn't matter, in my opinion, whether it's the AstraZeneca or the Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, BioNTech, or um, Moderna. You can look at your risk factors and try to determine whether you are um, at risk. If you are a doctor and AstraZeneca is what is available to you and you are out of the front lines, you have to look at the risk versus benefits. What are the odds of my getting any um, uh, clotting issues and what are the odds of my getting um, COVID and getting sick from it? And then you make that decision. But um, if one is not available to you, then obviously you can get something um, um, somewhere else. But the quicker you get vaccinated, the better. And there's still a lot of um, research going into place. We don't know why. And it might be just something as simple as some other thing that the the that group um, is doing, you know, I don't know, birth control, it's, I, I don't know, we just don't know, there's a lot of conjecture right now, but okay. um, I would say get the vaccine if you can, whichever vaccine you can get. Awesome, awesome. Now, uh, countries are trying to open up, I know in the States, uh, you know, there's been a lot of opening up and closing up and, you know, um, now, regarding children, I know that Pfizer has come up with um, a vaccine for children ages 12 to 15, can you speak to that? Yes, um, they actually um, applied for an expanded um, authorization, expanded yeah. authorization on Friday um, to uh, be able to vaccinate children um, between 12 and 15. Right now, it's approved for people 16 years and older, and Moderna is 18 years and older. Um, and Pfizer has now gotten this, um, applied for this emergency use authorization to give kids 12 to 15 years. I would say that this is excellent because everybody has been worried about their children, especially school-age children, who are not very young kids, but they are, you know, they have adults' um, behaviors and um, their physiology is like, you know, adults, adult-like. So if they're able to get this in place, yeah. it would be wonderful because kids could get vaccinated before the next school year. And then mm -hmm. people can go back to regular schooling and not have to worry so much about distance learning. Um, we don't have anything now for children who are less than 12 years old, but there are studies that are going on um, and I'm actually going to see what I can do to enroll my children. My, my children are younger than 12 years old in um, uh, some of these studies, if I can find them. And that's how much I believe in the vaccine. You are saying this because you're a doctor. I mean, I'm sure there are some of people on the, on the platform that say, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't allow I my children. I know, I know that. But I'm trying to say that, you know, I believe in the vaccine so much especially the Pfizer, which I, know, which I know more about because I've been giving it and that's what I got, I would absolutely give my children in a heartbeat. Um, so if people see that I do that and my children are fine, well, you know, maybe more and more people will be able to um, get their children in the studies. And if that's approved, um, I would say, you know, go on and do it. The more of you are vaccinated, the better. <laughs> but I understand, I know, when it comes to your kids, uh-uh. <laughs> Now, I, I just wanted to speak to this, uh, you know, again, I have to talk about how can you, how can we encourage um, 
not just people of color. How can we encourage people to uh, take these vaccines? Because uh, people mm -hmm. are very, it's still a very fluid situation. So can, can you speak to that? Yes, it's a challenge. It's an absolute, absolute challenge. I mean, um, you're right. It's not just people of color. People of color, we've talked about how, um, you know, in the United States in particular, you know, the mistrust in the, with the um, healthcare system. In um, other people, you know, who are not people of color, um, they have, the messaging has, over the last year, has been bad, you know, it's been politicized, um, which should never be, healthcare should never be politicized, but it's been politicized and people are like, well, I'm going to look after my body, it's my own right, I don't know the long-term effects of this virus or the, the long-term effects of the vaccine. And we don't want to, you know, you can't just um, dismiss people and say, oh, they're ignorant, they don't know what they're doing, they don't know what they're talking about. I think a lot of it has to do with information, getting people that information for them to make their minds up, letting them know why the vaccines were created so quickly, what the virus does, how do you evaluate your risk versus benefit, and, you know, what the consequences are if we are, as a world, as, you know, the population of the world are not, um, we don't achieve herd immunity, the fact that it will just continue. In places like Nigeria, where um, I know I made myself very frustrated over the last year, um, every time I went to a social media, there was a party, there was a funeral, there was a wedding, and there were people, you know, around without masks and, and things like that. And they said, well, we don't have it in Nigeria. Nobody's dying. Nobody's this and that. And it bothered me a lot because I know that the virus is not discriminating against Nigerians. You know, it's not saying that, you know, I'm not going to infect Nigerians, but I'm only going to infect Africa, Americans or people from the UK. Um, mm -hmm. There was something, obviously, you know, we don't know 100% why some people, the um, um, infection hasn't been, the pandemic hasn't been as bad in some countries in Africa. Some of it might have to do with the age of... Um, or, is it, is, or is it the prayers in Africa? <laughs> maybe, even the prayers. But I'm sure people pray in other parts of the world too, <laughs> you know? I'm just kidding, I, just kidding. I know, I know you're just joking, but prayers help anywhere. But I think, you know, the ages of, you know, in, Af in Africa, we're younger than people in um, the Western world because people die a little bit early of infections and other things. They can't get to the hospital, et cetera. So our average age in Nigeria, for instance, is like 18 years old, whereby the average age in somewhere like China is over 30, you know? And so um, we know that younger people do not get it as bad as older people, but it doesn't mean that they're not carrying the virus and it's yeah. not spreading to other people. We also, you know, a lot of people are just outside all the time. People are, windows are open. Maybe that's a factor as well. There are things that have been um, looked at, but the bottom line is we threw a lot of caution to the wind in Nigeria and a lot of people had a lot of big social events and uh, people died. So um, it took that to make people take uh, pay attention again. And um, I think that's all we can do. We can only give education. We can, um, um, you know, I tell people that when they get vaccinated, they should put it on social media, tell their friends, their family, their colleagues, because the more likely, the more they see people getting vaccinated, the more likely that they will get vaccinated, right? Because they've seen this person and this person is doing just fine. So why can't I get vaccinated? Um, okay. Take information out there to people where they live, you know, and um, not assume everybody's going to watch social media, go to churches, go to, um, um, you know, other groups where um, um, people can help you to um, disseminate the message to their own congregation or their constituents. Okay. Someone has a question here. It says, how, how does the vaccine work in the case of people uh, who have had the infection before? 
Aren't they meant to have developed antibodies as a result of previous infection? Can you speak to that? Yeah. You see, the thing about it is that, um, again, this is a virus that we don't know a lot about. What we do know, what seems to be the case is that once you get infected, right, you seem to have immunity for at least three months, possibly longer in some cases, but at least three months. After three months, you know, all the bets are off. Are you, can you get vaccinated? Can you get infected again? It's certainly possible. Um, it is, we haven't seen, um, reinfection is pretty rare when you look at the millions of people who've been infected in the world, um, reinfections are extremely rare, but it happens. And um, now that we have different um, strains, um, we it's, it's actually possible and likely that some people who get infected um, a second time might be infected with another strain. Um, these are, um, I know now in Minnesota and all over the United States, if you see somebody who has a breakthrough case, either being reinfected after they were infected like over three months ago, or they've gotten vaccinated and they get infected again, then we have to send it off to see what kind of strain it is and what's happened. But our antibodies are not, everybody develops antibodies differently. Your immunogenicity is what we call it you might develop very strong responses. And we've seen children tend to develop very strong um, antibody responses. Maybe that's why they don't get as sick. But um, not everybody develops in the same way. And antibodies are not the only factor in terms of fighting this infection. There's also another type of immune system called the cellular um, immune system, basically. So everybody is different. What we do know, though, is that the vaccines elicit a much stronger immunogenicity than the than the infection itself your wow. antibodies are higher when you're vaccinated than when you get an original infection um so more to come um we can just we've only had like um just over a year of having this as a global pandemic a lot to learn but we know that the infection is possible seems to be rare now but that's one of the reasons why we say wear masks there's so many different things that we don't know Awesome, awesome. Bosola you've been you've been adding so much value tonight we celebrate you and we honor you uh if you just joined us, uh, we've been speaking with uh, Bosola Akisete. She's resident in uh, in Minnesota, in United States. She's, she's an assistant professor of infectious diseases, and she's we're speaking tonight on leadership and COVID. Now, I want you to speak to this. Um, I think it was about a few days ago, and uh, a particular lady who went on holiday, I, don't, I can't remember the country now, said she was vaccinated, but she still got infected. Yeah, and that's what I was trying to, uh, that's what I was alluding to towards the end of my last um, 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 sentence there, saying that, um, you know, these vaccines, um, we know that um, they're not 100% effective, right? Um, even with the Moderna and Pfizer, that about 95, 96% effective against infection, um, mm -hmm. although they seem to be closer to 100% um, effective against severe infection, leading to hospitalization and death. But yeah. they're still that 5%. And if you have a million people, percent is um is a lot of people you know so you might you can still get the infection you can still probably have a symptomatic infection because i think that's what happened with that person she tried to get on the plane and she tested positive um even though she had tested negative in the interim um so it's very very possible to get that we um know that it is uh nothing is a hundred percent you know and um uh, we have to use other public health um, mitigation um, efforts to try to um, decrease the spread of this um, virus. Okay, excellent. Well said. Now, I just want to speak to this. What's the role of leadership 
you know, in creating awareness, you know, a situation where you have some governors are saying, you know, you know, you shouldn't wear masks. Some are saying wear masks. Can you speak to this? What's the role of leadership in yeah. ensuring, you know, we can, you know, ar arrest COVID? Yeah, I'm very pained. Look at my face because you know it's something that has been <laughs> has been very very painful to watch as infectious disease doctors. You know, um, leadership is critical. I mean, uh, past um, leadership in this country, I think, um, bungled a lot of this effort, and which is why we allowed this virus to um, spread and affect so many people so quickly. You know, um, now we have different leadership. Um, everybody's going to, I mean, nobody's going to do everything 100%, right? But I think one of the most important things is listening to the experts, listening to the experts and getting people from different areas who have um, expertise in different areas that can help you. Um, the experts know the research, um, the epidemiologists know how it's spreading. You have um, people who are in communication, you have um, technology people, you have um, um, religious leaders, you have... Um, people from um, different um, ethnic groups or different races, and um, they come together and come up with something. I've been impressed by the current president's efforts, and also my organization, Health Partners, has done a great job in terms of trying to get this information out. Um, well done, well done. Wonderful, and one last thing is that you have to be able to adapt. New information is gonna come out about this virus. You can't say, oh, you said this then, so I can't do it now. You need to change and adapt it. If this is what it says, then do it. And say that you didn't know before, but now you know, so do it. Um, and and um, I think humility is is the is the name of the game um, wow. from anybody who is involved. Wow, wow, awesome, awesome. I just want to thank you. Now, I want to ask a, a very, you know, a, a, it's, it's a tricky question, you know, so I'm not trying to set you up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I want to listen attentively. Can COVID be eradicated? Ah, that's a very tough question. I actually don't know. I don't know if anybody knows because um, again, you know, um, there are some viruses that have been eradicated, right? Um, smallpox was eradicated. Um, um, polio okay. has been eradicated. Um, but I don't know the way that COVID is very, very transmissible. Um, we have a symptomatic infection whereby you don't know somebody has it and so that person can send it to you, can give it to you. Um, and again, if we do not have a herd immunity, if about 80% of us in the world are not immune against it by vaccination, um, yeah. mostly, I don't think we can eradicate it. It's going to keep mutating and it's going to keep finding a way to get by vaccines or medications that um, we use against it. Um, it might become seasonal, like the flu. In the uh, you know the influenza changes every year. That's why you have to get vaccines every year. It shifts a little bit every year, and then you have to put put another vaccine for that year. Um, it's possible that COVID can become that way, but you know we might have enough herd immunity that the virus will just peter out, maybe. Um, but I'm not um, confident. <laughs> okay, there's another question from a friend of mine who's going to be speaking on. Uh leadership and talent management next week. His name is Dr. Io Udweni. He's uh, speaking, uh, asking this question. Uh, it says, are you concerned that some leaders are anti, 
is it anti <laughs> anti practice? And yeah. if you if yes, what is your advice to leaders who are pro vaccination in terms of tackling the rhetoric and misinformation coming from their peers? Yes. I think that um one of the main things is to try not to antagonize people too much. I think that's one of the things that gets people fired up. Other people on the other side fired up and then they say, oh, it's my right to do this. It's my right to do that. Um, you talk about the benefits of the vaccine. Talk about the risk versus benefits. Get that information out to even the, you know, even if it's not the leadership that is talking about it, go to the people where they live. Go to the people who are being affected. Send people out. Talk to their, um, their leaders, talk to their sisters, their brothers, their students, their colleagues, you know, and get them to actually one-on-one -on -one talk about things and let them give them the actual information that they need to make that decision for themselves. Because we know that there are some leaders who are not going to tell us what is real. Um, at least according in the, in the, in the um, medical world, we know that there were anti-vaxxers in the past who have been against all vaccinations, assuming that, you know, like the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine causes autism in kids, which is something that has totally been debunked. It is not true. But there are a lot of people who are still behind that and people are still listening. So I think we just need to break out into small groups and talk to people, go to where they live and give them the message one-on-one -on -one, as opposed to just letting top um, leadership, um, you know, control the, um, the rhetoric and the conversation. Okay. Now I want to speak to this, your constituency, you know, the healthcare workers, you know, you guys, you know, frontline, but quite a number of your colleagues are not taking the vaccination. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, it had been puzzling to me a little bit. Um, I'll tell you, this happened last week. We have, um, uh, meeting uh, um, that we have every week with the Department of Health, Minnesota Department of Health, all the infectious disease doctors in the um, in the state and anybody who is interested. And we were talking about this exact topic, you know, how do you uh, tackle vaccine hesitancy? What are you doing in your institution? What are you doing in that institution? And then somebody called in, and this is a person who is a doctor. We don't know who that person is, but the person is obviously not an infectious disease doctor. The person called in and said, it is my right to do what I want with myself and my body. I do not know what the long-term side effects are of this vaccine. I've seen some people who have, might have some neurological problems. I've seen some, I've heard about some people who might have some issues. And as even though I'm a doctor, it is my right not to get vaccinated. Um, I will... I don't, I can just wear a mask and go and see my patients. But somebody said, you know, that's not fair. You know, you are, that person who is seeing you is trusting that you are healthy and you're not going to make that person sick, you know? And she said, well, you know, I can put on a mask, I can do whatever, put on a, a shield and try to prevent myself from um, infecting anybody else. But I, I, I think that um, it's easy for me to say it's selfish, I, but I understand that she has, um, um, valid um, uh, concerns, but it's again a matter of a matter of um, information. You know, talk to people. You know, don't just listen to what your friends are telling you. Talk, talk to people. Um, it's, it's a yeah. yeah, it's yeah. still a challenge. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, I, you, I promised that you were going to be with us for an hour. We're almost getting to you know forty-five minutes. I just want to thank you for showing up. And sure. even for those who are asking questions, we want to thank you for engaging. Um, I just have about two more questions. Okay. Uh, yes. Um, just, um, 
Now, this culture of transparency, can you speak to that? What can we do to make sure that this is transparent, you know? Uh, because some people believe that it's shrouded in, you know, in secrecy, you know, in terms of uh, what is in the vaccine. Some uh, saying that, look, your DNA, your, you know, and so on and so forth. Can you speak to that for a few minutes? Transparency. Yeah. Yeah, that's the most important thing. We have to uh, be absolutely transparent about everything. And that's why, you know, when I'm giving information, I'm trying to tell people what happened and how it came about and why this is being done. And, you know, just give them the information that they need. Um, people think, I mean, there's always a conspiracy theory out there. Um, you know, I, when I see leaders taking the vaccine, when I see doctors taking the vaccine, when I see other healthcare workers and important people taking the vaccine, I'm hoping that people know that those people um, trusted the information enough and are doing okay. You know, they're the public eye. We can see that they're doing okay. Then maybe yeah. they'll believe. But unfortunately, you cannot cut off social media. You know, the social media is everywhere. Um, you know, they're trying to sort of um, stop misinformation about the vaccine, and but you can only do so much. Um, and um, but explaining and educating is is the main way to go. Um, going to people and when they ask questions, tell them what you know, tell them what you heard, tell them to look at the data. Um, this is the uh, this is the um, research data that is saying this and that. Um, and the the vaccine companies themselves have to be much more transparent. I think that's one of the issues that has happened with AstraZeneca. I trust the vaccine, um, but. Um, I don't know that they've been as forthcoming with some of the information as quickly as the Pfizer and BioNTech um, um, uh, companies came up with that. And so it makes it a little, look a little bit more suspicious. But um, it's, 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 it's a, it's a it's game a that's... It's a conversation. We don't have to keep going. People make yeah. mistakes, learn from their mistakes and move forward, basically. Wow. Awesome, awesome. I said two more, one more question, you know, but this is, this. I need to speak to this, um, you know, in a few minutes. Vaccine passports, is it likely to happen? I don't know. I think it's happening somewhere. It's happening in the, um, in the. Uh, I think it's happening in New York right now. I think that's the only place in the U.S. I know that is it's happening, um, whereby um, they have to, you know, it's online. It's, um, uh, you show it on your phone. And then only when you've had that, um, those two vaccines, can you be allowed to go into um, um, a game? Because I think it was being used for, um, a football game in the in the United States in New York, um, but I, I don't know. I I think um, personally, I think it should be. <laughs> and if you're not, um, uh, if you're not using it, then you should need to have an exemption of some sort, saying I can't get it because of you know I have no. a reaction to this or something, you know. Um, but uh, people are going to say that it's my right to do what I need to do, and I don't need to show a passport to say that I I can go here or I can go there. So you're going to have a lot of um, arguments against that uh, because people live, believe in free you know freedom, you know, and their civil rights, and they don't want that trodden um, tr uh, upon. But I I do think it's going to happen. I'm sure that people that are not going to be allowed to go on a plane if they don't have a vaccine they're going to be people who are not allowed to go into some certain um institutions like going back to school um they're using it in some colleges now in the united states if you're not vaccinated and you can't show that you've been vaccinated then you don't come back to school wow. and it's going to take hold in in other places um, wow. Wow. um i think it should wow. <laughs> but that's yeah, my infectious disease doctor you know <laughs> um, i think it should <laughs> no we, we respect we respect your, your views you know i mean and that's that's your feel. Um, 
So we just want to thank you tonight uh, for showing up and adding so much content. And for those of us that are on the platform, I want to say thank you to Osola. Just say drop it in, in the comment section. Uh, say thank you to her for you know giving us this invaluable information. Uh, finally, finally, um, now you you are adding so much value. Your knowledge base is so wide. Who are your mentors? Your um, mentors. Yeah, I mean. Um... I alluded to this at the beginning. I mean, my parents made a big, big impact on me. My mom is a doctor as well. She's a professor of um, hematology. People um, would know her at the University of um, Lagos. And she's been very involved in the world of HIV as time has gone on. And I've watched her. I've seen how and she's your dad been. was also a professor as well? Yes, my dad was also a professor as well. And um, in my mom's case, I saw how she blended her family, her life, her career, and she was still able to maintain her life and be a happy person. And wow. I said, I'm going to be like her, you know? And wow. my father also told me that as a woman, I, or whoever I am, I should, whatever I want to do, I should try and do it. Don't do it halfway, do it well. Um, both of them made a major impact in my life growing up. And um, I had a couple of mentors um, along the way. Um, there was a, a African-American um um, uh, a doctor when I was in my residency, Dr. Valerie Stone, she was um, very big in the world of HIV and she sort of just took me um, under her wing and, um, you know, taught me a lot, um, introduced me to people, opened up my world and, um, um, and, and made me more interested in infectious diseases and HIV. And then finally, my, um, when I came to Minnesota, I worked um, when I was starting out my career um, this was um, actually a white man. He's an older white man, Dr. Keith Henry. And wow. he took me under his wing. He took me out there and said, Basala, you know, there's HIV going on in the community. You're a black doctor. You're from Africa. You're interested in this. Go out, do this. Introduce me to people. Had me go out there in the public wow. eye. And um, he helped me so much to be who I am today. And I'm so grateful to, to all those people and of course to God for, for making it possible um, in the first place, yeah. Wow, Bosala, you, you've spoken so well. We're thankful, we just uh, celebrate you. We just wanna bless God for your life and what you're doing. Uh, you're touching so many lives and we believe that, you know, you know uh, the sky is, you know, is not even the limit, you know, you could continue to soar. On behalf of myself and Leadership Talk with Adig, okay, we just wanna thank everyone that's you know, join us tonight and going to be watching the replay. Uh, we celebrate you. Um, uh, you have some some people here that have been rooting for you. Uh, Timilola, you know, is saying uh, awesome, you know. Uh, thank you. You're not sure about saying thank you. Quite a number of people. Uh, you're, you're much loved on this platform for coming. And uh, I just want to thank you so much. So this is the 31st edition of leadership talk with Adegoke. And next week, we're going to be having another special guest, Dr. Igo Udweni. He's going to be talking about leadership and talent talent management. So until next week, by the special grace of God, have a restful Sunday evening. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Thank, Thank you. you.